So this morning's scripture is a, a dramatic one, right? This Jesus feels perhaps unfamiliar, uncomfortable, flipping over tables, rushing into the temple, driving people out, right? Somehow, despite being in every gospel, despite being a crucial event in Jesus' life, somehow this story feels like we've never heard it before, doesn't it? Like, who is this Jesus? But rather than it being an anomaly and thinking that we can just sort of skip over it, right, and, and think that we, we don't lose anything about his overall message, we don't lose anything about understanding Jesus' mission, I believe that we cannot begin to understand the meaning of the cross or of Easter apart from the events described in this morning's scripture reading. Right, so if you were with us on the first Sunday of Lent, you may remember that our main question for that day was, who will you listen to? We've been posing these questions throughout Lent. Whose voices, whose perspectives do you listen to? And whose are missing? But referencing a quote from Howard Thurman, who is a, a great 20th century African-American mystic and theologian. He was a mentor to Dr. King in the civil rights movement. Referencing a quote from him, I also insisted that a second question was equally important and maybe, in fact, needed to be asked first, which is, where are you going? Because where we are going, right, what we are really after in life what we are living for, or posed another way, what, what our purpose is, what our direction is, that will shape how we choose to live each day. It will shape who we choose to listen to, who we make our journey with. And this morning's scripture reveals to us where Jesus has been headed this entire time. The direction that has been shaping his whole ministry, his whole path, up until this point. This is where Jesus has been going. And so I want to retell this morning's scripture to invite us to inhabit it a bit more fully again, like, a, like at the beginning of the service, to help it really sink in. So put your imagination cap back on, and let us see ourselves into the unfolding scene. Your caravan cresses the hill, and Jerusalem comes into view, not far off. You've made the pilgrimage to Jerusalem with your family, your extended family. The air is thick with dust and excitement as the city of 40,000 swells to 200,000 for weeks. Pilgrims from all over the known, the known world have come to celebrate the biggest, most central Jewish holiday of the year, Passover, which commemorates the Israelites' liberation from slavery under Pharaoh in Egypt. So there you are with 200,000 of your closest friends and relatives camping out for a couple of weeks, barbecuing, celebrating your people's liberation from foreign oppression. But this is no extended 4th of July party. 
because this celebration of liberation is taking place in the context of our current occupation, of our current oppression and exploitation by the Roman Empire. And so it represents not only a remembrance of God's deliverance in the past, but it also inflames passions for a new deliverance today. Right? Imagine the struggles for liberation and justice for, for sovereignty of Palestinians in the Holy Land or Dalits in India or Tibet from China or African Americans or indigenous people in the United States around the world. Right? Rome is no dummy. They are well aware that, that these yearnings for liberation exist and that these make Jerusalem during Passover a powder keg that could explode at any moment. And so they are ready. And so as we and our fellow pilgrims fill the city, the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, parades in from one end on his tall, powerful war horse, followed by a column of imperial soldiers as a bold display of his military power and a reminder to you of who is in charge. As we make our way from one end of the city to the next, we can't help but notice the thousands of extra-Roman troops who've been called up to Jerusalem and stationed very visibly for intimidation purposes and, and crowd control. But these are the very kinds of power dynamics that we long to be liberated from. As we continue on and we pass by the enormous Jewish temple complex, which was a true wonder of the ancient world. It was magisterial in its size and atmosphere. As we pass by, we are inundated by the smells of barbecue and rich spices and the cacophony of the bustling marketplace around it. And as we continue on a bit further, we arrive at the other end of the city. And we are swept up in the crowds, waving their palm branches and shouting, Hosanna! Hosanna to the son of David! For some, it seems this is truly a cry from the heart for deliverance, right? Save us, they cry. For others, it seems, well, nothing more than an excited shout. They're just sort of caught up in it all. Let's join the parade, right? Whatever they're shouting. And as you stretch your neck to see what in the world all the chaos is about, you see the man that people are welcoming like a king riding in on a donkey? What in the world, you wonder? Like, who does this guy think he is? We've got Pilate parading in over on this end of the city, riding a war horse, flanked by a column of soldiers. And this guy's grand entrance is a dinky little donkey? And then you remember the ancient words of the prophet Zechariah of how he spoke of God's anointed one, of a king like David who who would once again liberate the people from bondage and oppression, that he would come riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. 
And you realize that this man's parade, is his grand entrance, is actually subversive street theater. That it is an intentional counter-protest to Pilate's entrance. It's a counter-display to Rome's imperial, warlike, conquering power with a display of what God's power looks like. Not a violent, conquering hero, but a humble subversive. As Jesus' next move makes clear, though, God's power is anything but passive. While it is nonviolent, it is also direct, and it is unafraid to confront the powers that be head on. Who is this, you ask someone in the crowd? It's Jesus of Nazareth, the, the prophet from Galilee, she says. But we turn to each other still a bit confused in the chaos of it all, right? We've, we've heard this name before. We've heard stories about him, but we don't, we don't really know who he is. And as Jesus passes through the crowd and continues on, we wonder, where is he going? Where is he headed? And so our curiosity leads us to follow him from a safe distance until he stops with the temple mount rising dramatically behind him and he gets off his donkey and he turns and for a quick moment your eyes meet. They are dark and soft, yet focused and determined. Uh-oh. As we turn to each other, we think like the great prophets of the past who came to Jerusalem with a mission to raise their voices against injustice, against corrupt religious and political leaders, you can sense that that this prophet's dramatic entrance was also only the beginning. Our hearts begin to pound faster. After pausing for a moment, Jesus moves swiftly through the marketplace that we passed by earlier toward the outer court of the bustling temple complex where he begins acting like either a madman, a prophet, or perhaps a bit of both, driving out those who are buying and selling, flipping over the tables of the money changers, and then from the dust aroused by the chaos, you hear him proclaim, my sanctuary is to be called a house of prayer for all people. And yet you have turned it into a den of robbers. We've heard these words before. That's right, they belong to those great prophets of old, Isaiah and Jeremiah, who also spoke out against the corrupt leaders of their day hundreds of years earlier. And just when you think we've reached the climax, there's another unexpected plot twist. As those who are blind and disabled stream to Jesus, and he restores them to God right there in the temple. 
which I, I know that might sound nice to you, but, but trust me when I say that Jesus is asking for trouble when he does this. You see, those people, disabled people, they had been explicitly barred from the temple, barred from God's sanctuary, because, well, as some of our fellow religious folks will tell you, the Bible clearly states that they are unclean and unnatural. Going back to King David himself, it's clear from Scripture that their disability is a sign of God's rejection of them. I can show you exactly where it says so. So these religious folks say. And so Jesus is not only defying the law, he is also defying Scripture. And like us, he knows that Pilate is in town. Right? He knows what Rome does to people who disturb the peace, who get uppity like this in public. That right there, that's what they do. Why? Where is he going with this? As the dust settles and Jesus somehow slips away, at least for the moment, we look at each other and we wonder, why did this poor prophet, this, this humbly dressed healer from the countryside do this? As God's anointed one, what, what was he trying to accomplish? Where was he headed with all this? It's no simple question to answer. One we are invited to simply sit with. But as we search back through the scriptures, a few points do seem to become clear. You see, first, in the ancient scriptures, the purpose of the temple, of God's sanctuary, was to be a place that cultivated gratitude for God's goodness, for the abundance of creation, and distributed it fairly equitably to the people. Right? They were to foster a culture, culture of grace, not only distributing resources equitably, but justice, especially for those who had been marginalized, those who were vulnerable. But as foreign rulers like Rome invaded and occupied us, they gave our local leaders power and wealth in exchange for maintaining law and order. Which is to say that the temple's true mission fell by the wayside in favor of protecting the status quo of their power and privilege. By the time Jesus shows up, the leaders of the temple have a monopoly on religious, political, and economic leadership. They oversee a system of taxation that was designed to keep the poor masses at subsistence levels and indebted to people, the elite, like them, and even more, they used scripture to demonize and exclude, well, various groups of people, including people with disabilities, to marginalize them in order to use them as scapegoats for societal problems. And so the temple's majesty is really only matched by its brutality. It may be awe-inspiring, beautiful, Gorgeous, 
But Jesus' actions make it clear that God refuses to bless those sanctuaries that are no longer places of healing and renewal for the marginalized and the vulnerable. That God tears down the altars and flips over the tables in judgment of those who claim to represent him, but who fail to restore a broken world to wholeness and instead are now adding to its dehumanizing fragmentation. When Jesus quoted our great prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah after his, his temple protest or riot or whatever you want to call it, he was clearly standing in their authority to declare God's judgment against that very kind of leadership, just as they had done. Both Jesus and Jeremiah are protesting a two-faced religion where people participate in injustice, where they bless greed and xenophobia, where they abuse their power, and then presume that they can hide behind their religion in order to escape any real consequences. Now, Jesus has to know that his disruptive actions in the temple will, in all likelihood, it will cost him his very life. Right? This is the final straw. You don't get away with something like this, with a slap on the wrist. The religious leaders are not going to have any more, and Pilate, who was known for his ruthlessness, has every reason to now add this man to the line of crucifixions that would have been lining the highway on your way into the city. Now, this is not an anomaly, this morning's Jesus. This is the capstone of his entire ministry. This is where he had been going the entire time. Since the beginning, Jesus has set the realm of God on a nonviolent but direct crash course with the empires of the world. But it's, it's not merely that through Jesus, God seeks to be a thorn in the side of any established order that allows dehumanization or that puts law and order above the dignity of the marginalized. It's not just that. You see, Jesus has a clear vision of what the realm of God looks like of a world that is liberated from fear and greed, of communities that truly live from love and toward love, that embody mercy, that pursue justice in a way that heals and restores rather than merely punishes. Jesus has a vision of a society that looks like one, one long banquet table, feast to which everyone is invited, where everyone delights and is filled with good things. It is that, that vision of abundance, of wholeness. That is where Jesus is going, toward a depth of life and flourishing on earth as it is in heaven. It is that vision that shapes his everyday actions, including on this fateful day. If someone has not discovered something worth dying for, 
Dr. King said, they are not fit to live. Now, I don't think that he, any more than Jesus, was saying that everyone needs to be a martyr and go looking around for death. But I think rather deep down, he is challenging us to not merely live a, a narrow life for ourselves or, or our own, nor to live a shallow life existing just on the surface, merely going toward, chasing after whatever it is that our world tells us will give us meaning or, or direction. Whatever it is that our world says, go here, whether it's a degree or a job or another person or money or success or fame, do not make that where you are going. Do not wait for your deathbed to look back with regret. Here and now, he is saying, consider, what are you living for? What are you willing to truly live for? Which is another way of saying, where are you going? For how you respond to this question, including whether or not you, you ever ask it of yourself intentionally, how you respond to that question will shape and determine the life that you lead. It will shape how you spend your days, and the life that lives on or doesn't after you. Where are you headed? May it be for your healing, for your flourishing. May it be for the healing and flourishing of all the world. Amen.